You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams, and this is the Superlative Podcast. Today, my guest is a very important person in the modern watch industry. He is the executive chairman of Watchbox, Mr. Danny Godberg. Hey, Danny. Hello, Ariel. Nice to be with you. It's it's nice to chat. I've wanted to have you on this show for a while. I've wanted to do podcasting with you for a while because every time we have a conversation, you always have such important things to say. It's almost as though you're thinking in terms of dropping sound bites, especially when I hear you interviewed by others. Do you, do you try to do that in interviews? No, I'm not. To be honest, I'm not. I don't do that many interviews. I've never really. Uh, I do some, but not that many. So it's not intentional if that's if that's what you're hearing. <laughs> no, I, I actually just always like the things you have to say. And, and I think, you know, more people should hear you. I want to give people a little bit of context as to who you are and what you do, because I think that's really, really crucial. Our relationship goes back over a decade. You've always been sort of a name. And on a basic level, you began because of the Govberg um, retail presence in the United States. But how would you, in a nutshell, if you could describe some of the major roles or things you've done in the watch industry over your career? Oh, wow. Um, I know it's a lot. I guess I started out in in 1981 or 82 in pre-owned buying and selling vintage timepieces because my parents were in the jewelry business since 1916. So pretty much just jewelry and diamonds, not watches at all. Family business. And then family business, where it was just uh, five of us, six of us, my grandfather, my mom, not my mom, my dad, my grandmother, my brother. We were all in like a 1,100-square-foot store in an area in Philadelphia called Sampson Street, which is like the wholesale area in Philadelphia. So when I came into business, there wasn't that much for me to do. I came in in 1983, right after graduating Miami, even though I had worked since I was 16 um, when I had off time. So that's when very quickly I realized there wasn't that much for me to do in the diamond business because all the opinions were already uh, being made by my dad and my grandparents. So I decided I was going to go into the watch business. I always liked watches, and we weren't in the watch business at all. So I started by buying pre-owned timepieces in around 1983. It's funny when I think back that Daytonas, as an example, were three and four hundred dollars at the time. Totally uh, different world back then. I mean, different world. There was no. Uh, there was no. Uh, there was no real market for that. Uh, Daytonas weren't even wanted. But that's when sort of uh, people were collecting some Patek Philippe's, but everything was vintage. And modern watches weren't even, weren't even wanted except for new Rolex. Uh, so there really wasn't a watch market. It was just some collectors of vintage and... I got into the market right around the time in 1983 that the whole industry came together in what I'd say collecting timepieces where the IWJG got launched in like 1985 or 86 because we used to go around the country and trade watches in hotel rooms. Uh, modern watches got more popular. Rolex took off. Patek Philippe took off. Uh, Osvaldo Patrizzi got into the business and with his auction house, um, Antiquarium and uh, Sotheby's, you know, did really good back then, too. And, and it just became uh, the everything that we're seeing today really started to become crystallized from in the early 80s. I, thank you so much for explaining that. And again, I want to give people some context. You know, you and I live and breathe this industry every single day. Not everyone understands how different it was. Now, back in that time, as Danny mentioned, watches that are very valuable today were more or less not wanted. There was no market for them. There was a couple of individuals around the world that would go to flea markets and estate sales and pawn shops and various random places to buy these things that today are considered absolute treasures. But at the time, it was also when watches were very much a commodity. 
as as you pointed out, new watches were something that was a heavily, heavily competitive market, an enormous amount of price, especially from the Japanese, that that turned the value proposition of watches upside down over the course of several years because the the, the previous European watches were so much more expensive and the Asian ones were just comparatively so much less expensive and and very, very popular. And so would you would you say that sort of accurately sums up what the time was like a little bit? Yeah, in the in the early eighties, Rolex dominated sort of like they do now. Patek Philippe was still very popular at the at the high end. However, there just wasn't nearly as many brands that people even considered. So you either, you know, pretty much it was a Rolex business and all these all the other brands that people hear about so much were individually owned. They weren't owned by groups. There was no real solid distribution system. So people were buying direct. Gold, gold dealers were the distributors. There, were no, there was no formality to the business, except Rolex was always very, uh, very true to sort of how it is today. And believe right. it or not, Patek Philippe is very true to pretty much how it is today. Right. Now, what was the point at which there began to be that organization? So like you said, watches didn't have their own stores. They were sold through mostly like, you know, jewelry stores. And they didn't have a lot of their own types of specialists and employees and, and things like that, that they sort of found a way to distribute within a different market, which is jewelry. And because you had this background in jewelry and this interest in watches, it sort of came together. Now, today, well, today, today, it's a little bit different, but let's say 10 years ago, you very much had a watch industry. When, when did that start? Was it the late 80s? Was it the 90s? Talk about when that began globally. You know what? It started to percolate in the, in the 80s. Uh, by 85, uh, it started to come together. Piaget Polo got really popular. Ebel, believe it or not, was very popular. Many people started to make choices other than just, say, for instance, Rolex, even though they were still the king. But just there was more um, more choice, more brands, more marketing. Breitling got Breitling got popular, uh, and then started the uh, consolidation of the groups with Richemont coming in with Cartier and with IWC Jaeger and Vacheron a little bit later, and then Swatch Group got involved when they purchased. They started to purchase brands like Breguet. Um, LVMH got into the game and they start to purchase brands. So it started to all come together, say from 1985 to 1995. And in that time, you know, uh, things started to change very quickly. What were your feelings when you started to notice that these watch brands were being gobbled up by these large corporate luxury groups? That must have that must have seemed like a signal of something. What do, what did that tell you? You know, I was just you know, I was in the game from all different uh, areas. So I was in, I was playing in the vintage, in pre-owned. By then, in 1985, I saw the writing on the wall that I needed to be in new, uh, not just in the vintage and pre-owned side. So we opened the store in the suburbs of Philadelphia, where I was able to get uh, all the watch brands. I opened that with my brother Jeffrey. And we were able to get all the watch brands. They weren't hard to get at the time, uh, except for Rolex and Paddock. So it did take me a number of years after 1985 to get them. I think Paddock was 1987. I got lucky there. But we were able to take a lot of brands on in 1985 because I saw that people were going to want new watches, not just uh, pre-owned. And then from there, I also was very much involved in the... Uh, liquidation business of brands, meaning when brands had watches that they couldn't sell, uh, they sold them to me. Uh, so I got into that business too, to be somebody who was able to buy what I would call overstocks a little bit. And I did that right, right from Switzerland, where I bought the timepieces. So I got to know the industry at a very young age. I was one of the few that were actually... Um, Flying to Switzerland and buying timepieces. So I was in the, I was in that business. I was in the new business, out here in the suburbs of Philadelphia, and then I was in the vintage business also. 
So that's how I cut my teeth in the in the watch business. You've basically inhabited multiple roles. Like most people in the industry would do one of those things, but not all of those things. What gave you the drive to sort of have multiple roles, uh, the energy to do all these things? Um, again, I think a lot of people admire you for what you've done. And, and if you sort of dissect some of your success, you identify that you've basically had a bunch of jobs at the exact same time. What is it about you or, or your lifestyle that allowed for that or, or made that something you wanted? Well, first of all, the reason was, I'd say the, the one area that separated me was I saw very early that people were going to want new watches. So most of my friends that were in the vintage watch business um, and that we would you know, buy and sell watches to each other, they were not interested in, at all in new watches because the majority of the business back then, especially the business that, that we were in, was all pre-owned. And it wasn't even modern pre-owned. It was really vintage. It was watches from the 60s, 50s, 40s, 30s, you know, 70s. So, of course, it wasn't the 90s. We weren't even in the 90s. So, like I said, Daytona's, Rolex Daytona's were $300. We used to sell them for $400. Or a Patek Philippe 2499 I remember playing golf with. I paid fifteen or sixteen thousand for it. And what what did that compare with new watch prices at the time? New watches was was as an example um, a man's president, a man's day date, you know, president was six thousand. A steel and gold was twenty one hundred dollars. So much different pricing. A Patek Philippe was. Uh, like a Calatrava 3919 at the time it was called, like a simple Calatrava. They were around $3,500 retail. So it was, you know, prices were much less. So you could you could make more money. You're saying the margins on new watches, which are a lot more attractive. So if you wanted a growing business, vintage, you always had to acquire the watches and then find buyers. You said, I'm really good at this. With new watches, I'd make a killing. Well, no, what I found was, Errol, was that I just saw, I just thought that more and more people over the years ahead were going to want a new watch. Where, where did you come to that conclusion? Like you, you've always seen things in the market that others don't see. And obviously you, you'd seen it for a long time. Where did you identify this need? Because even back then, even in the, in the pre-em where I started, it's only 1% of the population. Still, even then, more people would want a new Rolex than would want a pre-owned one. So right. when all of a sudden the explosion of brands hit the market, you know, IWC and Jaeger and Vacheron and Piaget and Hublot and Breitling and Ebel and Corum and on and on and on and on. So could you not get a new Rolex at the time? Like, was their distribution much more limited? I'm trying to understand what the competitive so landscape would be. I couldn't, I couldn't get new at the time, except back then there were no rules on, you know, buying Rolexes out of the country or bringing them in. So, yes, when somebody would want a new Rolex from me, I could always get it for them, but that wasn't where I was really specializing um, I was really specializing in the brands that I could get direct and on the pre-owned side. So I didn't really do much with Rolex in, the, in those early years. I was pretty much, you know, selling the watches that I was buying direct right from the brands. Now, I understand that a lot of what you were doing is identifying that the market was interested in something. And then obviously you had to go to Switzerland. They didn't necessarily have this great idea of how to sell to the American market. What was that like sort of from um, you know, an entrepreneurial perspective? You had this, this object that could be sold for a lot. There's people that are excited about it. And you were this gatekeeper, right? Like if it wasn't for you literally flying to Europe and bringing it back, no one's going to see it. Um, that must have been very empowering at the time. Yeah, no. I mean, for the most part, I went to Switzerland for more, more, I told you, of the overstock business because that's where the quantities were. And I had a way of, of selling them that weren't embarrassing the brands. Like I always looked at the brands as my partners and I wasn't out to hurt them. So I would do that business in my way. And then I was also an official retailer of these brands. So it was sort of checks and balances. I didn't want to hurt them. 
And I also was selling their product officially, you know, through our store in Philadelphia. And I was also dealing in pre-owned at the time that very few people were doing that. So I was in multiple watch businesses, but always, always respected the brands, um, what I would call the primary brand owners and always thought that someday the merging of the primary business and the secondary business would come together. That's what and I, it is, and it, and it is coming together now. Yeah, it now, has. Now you have among the best reputations when it comes to treating your, your partners well. This is for sure. What about the other way around? How have they always treated you and, and also your, your countrymen here in, in America that have done uh, similar things in the industry? That's a good question. Um, for the most part, other than a few like Rolex and Patek Philippe, I think many of the brands have done what's good for them, which, you know, I think makes sense in some respects because they're running businesses. So, for instance, if you take Rolex and for some and for the same, I could say to Patek Philippe, too, their number one, their number one customer their number one priority is the customer. And it's, a, it's, it's, how we've, it's how we at Watchbox are too. Everything we do is around our customer. We speak to our customers directly. Our number one priority is that. But with brands, say, as like I said, Patek Philippe, number one priority, or, or Rolex too, is the customer. Their number two priority is their dealer network. Right. Both of those groups really care about their dealer network, Ariel. It's, um, you know, it's, it's a family type of atmosphere with them. I'm not saying that they can't be a stern parent at times, but they're doing it for the right reasons. And uh, that's their. And the third priority is them making money. So you've got the customer, their family of, of uh, authorized retailer network, and then making money. If you take, say, for instance, the Richemont group or some of these other groups, their number one priority is making money. That's their number one priority. Interesting. And look, they're a public company and that's how it works. Their number two priority, in my opinion, is their customer. That's their number two. That's their, for the most part, their number two priority. They do want to try to take care of the customer. And their number three priority is their retailer relationship. So they operate very differently. They could really care less about the retail network because they care about themselves, number one. They do very much care about the customer, but they care about making money more important than that. So that's just how I would say 90% of the industry operates. Other, Well, that's not fair. Paddock, uh, Rolex is 50, Patek Philippe's 25. So or 20. So that's how the other, for the most part, 30% of the industry operates. Not that there's other brands I could call out that are similar to Paddock and Rolex, but for this discussion, it doesn't make sense. But for the most part, that I think simplifies it. You know, that's all. It's the customer, the retail network, and making money to making money the customer, and the retail network. I have sort of a scenario that I think is a good example of what you're talking about that can help people understand how this can play out in sort of a real-world scenario. And I'm going to give sort of a little bit of a history about how I first learned about it, and then I'd like your opinion because this has definitely affected your business and also been something that you're very, you know, uh, um, much an advocate for having a good resolution to. So when I first started out in the watch industry, I met, I met a gentleman that, you know, grew up near you, Steve Holtzman. And Steve Holtzman uh, was starting up this independent watch brand called Maitre du Tom, which I know you probably know, very high end, very nice stuff. And Steve's story was that he was someone who had distributed uh, the brand Roger Dubuis in America and created quite a large market for it. Roger Dubuis then was acquired by a corporate parent and decided that they wanted to take over distribution in America themselves and cut him out and uh, essentially own own that market as a subsidiary of the corporate entity. Now, he had built this market up, which means he had developed all these relationships with retailers, advertising, just built up this whole network, and then it was sort of taken away from him uh, without too much ceremony. 
And so there was a big lawsuit, really, really big lawsuit. And through a sort of an interesting intellectual property technicality, he was able to get a nice payout for it. But for the most part, presumably, you know, ultimately had the legal right to end the distribution and take over the market for themselves. And that set off a very interesting signal to the industry, which was that if you are a retailer or a distributor and you make a big market for a brand in America, at some point that brand will get greedy and take it away from you. So don't even bother unless you have really solid assurances. You have been someone who have been very instructive and in making certain things very popular in America or doing a very good job of selling them and have, in my, my experience, been subject to this interesting market force. So how does that affect your business and what are you trying to do about it exactly? So I've always, uh, again, in our, in our business now at Watchbox, 95% of our business, we buy, the, we buy watches right from the end user, the consumer, and we sell watches to the consumer. So, so much of our business is now, you know, high, you know, extremely high end. Our average sale price aerials somewhere around $25,000. So when it comes to the new, the new product, we don't have that much issue because we deal with all brands now. Like we sort of sit alongside of many brands. So if we, we're, as an example, we're not an official retailer of Long and Son. Uh, Long and okay. Son. Yeah, but you love them. I, I like the watch very much. And I have, uh, we probably have the largest collection of Long and Son in the world, you know? So we're buying them and we're selling them and we're, we're, we're talking to clients about them every single day, even though we don't deal directly with them. And it's no different. We used to be a big, a big uh, dealer of FP Journe. And as an example to what you're speaking to, about a year ago, they made a decision to close their entire United States retail distribution because they can't get enough product for themselves and they decided that they can just go direct. Uh, and between me and you, I don't really think they made a bad decision. It's just a decision that they wanted for themselves and they own the brand, so they did what they thought was good for them. But at Watchbox, we're the largest seller of FP Journe in the world today. So all over the world, the clients want to collect FP Journe they call us and many times we can help them and we try to make the business fun for our clients. So we're in the market for every brand. Now, it happens that we do sell Rolex at Govberg, not at Watchbox, and we sell Patek Philippe at Govberg and not at Watchbox, which is our retail store still here in Philadelphia. But Watchbox mm -hmm. in general, what we are is we're one of the largest sellers of fine timepieces now in the world. And what's interesting is we have a mentality. The best part about where we've come from is I come from it from the brand's perspective. I come from it on how to, on how to be as high luxury as possible. The only thing that we do try to do here, we really do try to make our customer number one. We really do. And then we really try to get our, our, um, our associates that work with us that are pretty much aerial watch aficionados. They're, they're watch-centric people who love the product that work at our company, and they're very important to us. And then making sure our clients have fun is a major priority of ours, and then making money. Because if we... If we make sure that, you know, the whole game of watches is fun, the money comes. So well, it's you know, a hobby be, at the end of the day. Yeah. It's got to be so fun. It's a hobby. And to most of our clients, certain people want to buy a watch because, you know, they really understand it and they want to collect it. Certain people want to buy a nice timepiece because, you know, it makes them feel successful. Others want to buy a timepiece to give a gift to somebody else. There's a whole bunch of reasons why people buy timepieces. Isn't it funny that the, the Swiss sometimes take it so seriously and sometimes forget that they're, you know, toys for adults? Yeah, well, it's also what's also really changed in the last 10 years, 15 years. Our watches mm -hmm. have also become an asset class. So 
many more people are taking them serious where it's not even a toy. It's, you know, you could say that a vintage car is a toy. Some people collect art. It's a, you know, art's a toy, but they've also become asset classes. So Yeah, but but at the end of the day, they're valued for their ability to make you happy like a toy would make you. Like as adults, that's sort of, you know, I, yes. I study consumer behavior. Us men need to continue to have fun in a socially acceptable way. Watches right. are one of those few things in America that we have available to us. Correct. And the main thing, like I said at Watchbox, is we try to operate and give our clients that experience and knowledge um, and value, sort of like the way that Patek Philippe and Rolex try to do it. It's about the customer. And I think that we've done a very good job at that. That's why we don't really do a lot of click and buying. Uh, I, I mean, we offer it. I don't even, personally, I don't even believe in it. You know, at Watchbox, we really are all about talking to our clients. So I'd say that out of every 100 sales, we probably talk to 98 out of the 100 clients to actually talk about the watch that they're buying. So we're really not in, e, you know, we do do e-commerce. We offer e-commerce. I definitely believe in e-commerce because it saves people time that want to just save time. But what we also try to do is offer real advice. You have to. You have to develop a relationship. I mean, I know that, you know, the way it works these days is you might acquire your customer online. In fact, you probably will, but you're going to sell to them on the phone, maybe even in person. And so they're going to find you through the internet, but it's still very much a relationship business selling to consumers, right? Very much relationship business. I mean, for us, what's interesting is, you know, the, the journey usually begins online. For instance, the journey begins online, like to come to a blog to watch. Maybe mm-hmm. that's where their journey begins. Or their journey begins at our Instagram account or our Facebook account or one of our own YouTube videos. And from there, it leads to the website, which is just another version of education and trust. They see who you are. They see what you carry. Uh, they see product. And they can consummate business that way. What we try to do from the website is take people then to the telephone where people call us. That's where Watchbox is great. We're quick. Our guys know what they're talking about. They're all enthusiasts. They're all experts. And we can usually save a client some time and give them some real fun and break down trust. And what's come out of the pandemic from there is more and more clients have moved to Zoom, almost like Zoom commerce. Uh, <laughs> yeah, ITs. I heard about that. And that now sits between the phone, which we call personal commerce, and what I call personal touch, which is when you actually meet a client either at the store or you meet them at a hotel, you meet them on an airplane, because meeting them in person is the last breakdown of trust. So... Trust starts online, moves to the website, moves to the phone, moves to the Zoom, and then moves to in-person. And that's what we try to do. We try to give a client great experience for no matter which one of those five areas uh, they would like to um, you know, consume or speak to us or about watches. Danny, so that's interesting that you say all that. I, I want to sort of bring up... Um sort of my summation of what you're talking about. And that is in America, to sell watches, it's much more complicated than opening up a fancy store or having an e-commerce website. Um, you can't just have you know consumers come in, be wowed by luxury branding and buy your product and have your, your name on billboards and stuff like that. You have to invest in human beings that can relate to the locals. And that's a lot of different types of people and localities in America. Um, to, to sell those products. And a, a facility like yours is specially adept at doing that. But when brands try to come in and do it themselves, they tend to vastly underestimate um, the effort required. Would you agree, disagree with that? I think that, I think that a, lot, a lot's changed in that respect. So I think that if you take a, a longer view of that, a shorter view, for many years, these brands were manufacturers. That's what they knew. They really didn't know retail. 
of course, anytime, just like if I decided I wanted to start making watches, I would probably have a big learning curve if I needed to start manufacturing them. So that's where the brands were coming from, Ariel. I think now, over the course of time, if you look at certain brands, they've created such demand. As an example, Audemars Piquet. So a lot of these stores, you know, they've created such fabulous demand that the retailers have become delivery agents. And as long as they're treating the clients with great respect, and as long as they're answering their questions to the best of their ability, a lot of people are just, you've got to become an expert at saying no. Where with, with a lot of brands now, the ones that are going direct, like let's use Audemars Piquet, they are gathering data, they are using CRM, they are trying to tr treat the client better, but the product is so scarce that a lot of their stores are empty. I do also think that what is starting to change the industry a lot, even with Audemars Piquet and Richard Mill and a lot of others that are going direct, is that the secondary value of their product is truly coming back to them now. And they're realizing how important it is that the secondary market value is a huge piece of their value. So, for instance, when watches like Rolex right now, every single one of their sport models is selling it, you know, is double the retail value. That says a lot about the product that you, you can't buy a watch because, you know, the value of it is double what you're paying for. And I think it just shows that Rolex has done an unbelievable job of what I tease of, of shining the crown, keeping that crown really, really shiny. And yeah. they keep very focused on the customer. I mean, I, I, that, that's their only priority. And I think that more and more brands are figuring it out now. And that's why you see Richemont Group and a lot of these groups just going direct. And I do think that where there is a, a, a real change is I do feel that the groups don't truly understand the importance of their secondary value. And I think that if you look at who's leading our industry today, even though some of the, the group's products are doing well, a lot of them have really taken a hit to what the real intrinsic value is. And I think that as time goes on now, in the next five years, if they don't do something about it, I think that you could see a real, real, real devaluation in the brand equity of many luxury brands today if the secondary value of those brands continue to deteriorate. So let, let's talk about this because this is something that you've been talking about for a number of years. You've obviously made a good amount of money in pre-owned, but you also understand the consumer psychology. And the status quo as of, let's say, five years ago was that not all watches, but many, many watches, if you would do a search for it, you would find a secondary market price that was much lower than retail that severely eroded one's faith in the retail price, which made it very difficult to sell at retail. And people often were not motivated to buy at retail because they saw what secondary prices were and they were afraid of losing value. So you're saying that smart brands need to consider the, the, the consumer experience when buying new as well as buying pre-owned, that the two, you know, they're like, you know, they're, they're, they're intrinsically combined. You, you can't have one without the other. You need to sort of control both. There is, of course, an ability to make money. But if you sort of just let the, the pre-owned and secondary market um, go willy-nilly without any regulation or oversight, uh, it's going to really rob you of an ability to have a thriving new business. Uh, is, that, is that a big part of what you're saying? No. no. What I, what no, I was, okay. Not really. What I was what I was saying was a role like let's use an example of an Audemars Piquet, and we can use an example of a Long and Son. Again, a brand that we I respect. I think it's really a fine product. But if you if you buy a Patek Philippe from Watches of Switzerland in London, and you take that Patek Philippe or a number of them over to say uh, watch finder you end up getting offered 
double what you paid for that watch many times. If you buy a Rolex from Watches of Switzerland in London and you take it over to WatchFinder, they'll pay you double the price for it. But if you buy a Longin Sun, many of their models, I'm not going to say they're number one steel model, but many, many of their models, and you buy it at Watches of Switzerland, and you walk it across the street to WatchFinder, which is owned by Richemont, they offer you 40% loss the day you buy it, sometimes 50% loss. So if that's the case, that you're taking such a depreciation on one brand against such an appreciation on another brand, then I think that that eventually starts to, to erode the confidence that watch collectors and consumers will have in that brand, as an example. So what are you telling brands to do exactly? Because, the nor- because it's, it's not the uh, norm that watches increase in value. It's still the exception. To get there is a combination of luck and having a lot of money to invest. But you know, what are you advising brands to do? Like, What should Longay be doing that they're not doing right? That's a whole nother discussion. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, but again, I think in, in you know I don't want to get into what they're doing wrong or right. I think that I think that there's a number of things that they could be doing that they've started to do actually. So, for instance, their sport model is fantastic, and I think that even at Watchbox, we've committed so much capital to their product because we believe in it so strongly that their resale value has come up a lot in the last year, year and a half. I mean, we've We've committed, you know, close to $20 million to Long & Son. I mean, we, we're, we're fans of the brand. I'm saying I think that from a group level, though, they could do more. They could support it more. Uh, I think the leadership could engage in it more. They could recognize at least their secondary value more. But I think there's things that they could do. But all I'm trying to say to you is, as a whole, a brand that, is not protecting or not even thinking about their resale value as a, as an example, you know, maybe Breguet, who's not concerned about it at all. I think that a reason that their brand is weaker against many of the brands we just mentioned is because their secondary value of a Breguet timepiece just doesn't hold up to many of their competitors today. And I think if it did hold up, then... I think Breguet would be a much stronger brand. So I think that that's a perfect example of a brand that is beautiful, incredibly made, incredible history. Uh, even I'm a the, fan. You know, aesthetics are great. Like, 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 I love that brand. I mean, I, I've liked it for a long time. I just think, again, when it's owned by a group or maybe the group is not looking at the secondary value the way they should, or they're not trying to reach out and figure it out to the much as, you know, in a way they should, that the brand suffers. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blog to Watch store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. Buy your wristwatches elsewhere and celebrate the watch collecting hobby with high quality original products at the Blog to Watch store. Right now, the Blog to Watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the Blog to Watch. Made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow in the dark face. The Blog to Watch store carries bespoke yet affordable products, which the Blog to Watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. Visit the website to see what is available right now, and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. So to in- improve Breguet's image, for instance, they could engage in, in marketing. But the problem, and this is where I want your opinion, goes back to who fits, foots the bill for marketing. Uh, brands say that the markets should do it, and the markets say, what's the point? If we build a market for you in our market, you'll just take it away from us, so you as the brand need to invest in it. Danny, who should be footing the bill for watch brand marketing? Again, it's not just marketing. I think it comes with leadership. So if you look at Thierry Stern, he leads. He, the heartbeat of Patek Philippe is from, is from Thierry. 
If you look at Audemars Piquet today, look who leads. Francois, one of the, you know, energy. It, it beats from the heart of, of, of HQ. You know, if you look at Richard Mill, Richard's leading it. It beats from his entrepreneurialism. It beats from, from himself. You know, if you look Rolex at Rolex is like the one of the only ones that can lead as a brand. Every everyone else needs some type of soul behind it. Yes, but but it's still it's still Rolex is the foundation of the beginning. Their 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 you know commitment to customers. They don't they're they're not forced by profits. You're, they're rule based. They're yes. like a, they're like the Vatican. They have a bunch of rules they have to follow. But but it leads from HQ. The, their principles, yeah. their marketing from tennis. I mean, HQ is leading it in as classy a way of any brand on this planet. That's how good they are. Absolutely, they are the classiest. Yeah, but it's being led by HQ. So I do think that it comes from leadership. I do think it's not just marketing. Because uh, I think it comes down to the heart and soul of, of the people that are, that are behind these brands. So that does sort of answer my question in regard to who should be footing the bill as, as HQ. Because you're basically saying that it's, it's not about money, but it's about their responsibility to begin with when it comes to setting a tone. And then that tone needs to be communicated through marketing. Yeah, I mean, scare, also scarcity is luxury too. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of wristwatches today... And then we don't even talk about rarity of, of the independence. That's a whole nother conversation. So, you know, I think that collectability, rarity, quality, communication, education, and then plain old making it fun to the customer. And more and more independents are doing great, better than they've ever done because they are rare they, you can engage many times with the watchmakers directly. They try to make it fun and engaging. You know, they are many times uh, uh, as fine, if not superior quality to many of the groups. And, uh, and people can, can relate to an independent watchmaker who makes, you know, 700 watches a year or 500 watches a year. You know, sort of like uh, Colt Wines against a big vineyard. So I think the, you know, our industry is evolving. Uh, it's exciting. More people are getting into it than ever before. More people are collecting it than ever before. Yeah. yeah. And, it's, and it's not a perfect industry. You know, the, the brands, the, the, the retailers, I mean, look, this whole industry is being disrupted. You know, and where I see the biggest change, other than Paddock and Rolex, the biggest change in the entire industry is is direct to consumer. You know, that's all. I mean, from manufacturer to consumer is a trend that is not going to slow down at all. No, except, no. like I said to you before, with Paddock and Rolex, number one customer, number two is their retail network. And number three is money. And as long as their retail network is making sure that they know that that customer is number one, then they're okay with with the uh, they're okay with the structure right now. No, it would be great if the corporate-owned groups could adopt that priority structure. I mean, that would be great. They can't. They can't because, for the most part, they're they're traded. They're they're you know they have to grow and they have to make profits, or else people get fired. Do they? Can't they just say, you know what? We're we're not we're yes, we're publicly traded, but uh, that's that. I mean, not every publicly traded company literally works for its shareholders. Like historically, that wasn't always a thing. I don't know why certain publicly traded companies feels like their shareholders are their customers. It doesn't affect their bottom line in a lot of ways. It just affects the 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 value of the stock option packages by the executives. Yeah, I think that I think that the I think that the groups are going to figure it out. I think, you know, you look at Richemont Group, you look at Jan Rupert, he's one of the smartest guys out there. I mean, the guy is the guy is a genius. What can we say? I mean, the guy's proven it. So again, this is a snapshot in time. But over the course of the next decade, they'll figure it out and they'll be direct to consumer. I really believe that. They'll take better care of the consumer maybe than they do now. 
and they will go vertical, which will give them years and years of profits that they're going to want to to create the enterprise value for their shareholders. And the people that will be left out will be the retailers. That's all. In 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 yeah. years to come, it's not going to happen tomorrow. But I, if we were going to have this conversation ten years from now. I think you'll see more and more from cons- from manufacturer to consumer. I, I agree. I agree. Now, I've always been curious what it's been like for you in terms of your ongoing experiment to have ownership in brands. Um, I think that it makes a lot of good business sense if you have a say in a brand and you believe in what they do and you think you can have a great, make a great market for them, you should have a say at the brand. What's that experiment been like for you over the last couple of years? I mean, it's been you know very public that you know you guys have a big stake in Deb and Tune. Uh, I don't know about everything you have going on right now, but what's what's that been like to to get your your fingers in brand management? So, what we try to do at Watchbox is number one, we try to think what can we what can we offer our client that is a little bit different and rare and meets a certain criteria as far as quality, um, innovation. So if you use Debithun as an example, I think Denny, who is the, you know, the, um, the lead watchmaker, it's an actual person that may be considered one of the finest living watchmakers today uh, that's alive. Certainly in the top 10, that's for sure. Many people think even higher up, he's won all kinds of awards. You know, he's, his partnership with Ford Debethune was with FP Jorn and Denny and uh, and Vinay Halter. So I mean, the guy's as good as it gets. Two, he makes 225 watches a year. Think about that. That's ultra rare. That's all he makes a year. Right. Right. So, and he's innovative. If you look at his early creations to what he creates today, he's evolved. It's almost like he's a contemporary, a leading contemporary artist in watchmaking, but he's a genius. So when Watchbox had the opportunity to get involved there, we already have the clients. We've got clients all over the world. So what we needed was to be able to have greater supply and to be able to tap Denny as a genius and then be able to get the supply that we felt that we could uh, let our customers enjoy. And that's all we've done. So Debethun sold out now for next year. They'll probably be sold out for years to come because if a thousand people want to buy one, that's four years. That's four years of uh, manufacturing capa- uh, capacity to Denny. He's not capable of making many more. So I think that's the reason that we got involved. It's innovative, it's rare, it's quality, and he's a living watchmaker that you can go to the manufacturer and actually meet. And if Watchbox finds more that fit that bill, that we could make sure that our clients could maybe get a piece to enjoy and share and have fun, then we'll make that investment. But that's the reason. Do you have any... Any hand in running the companies, or are you just totally hands off and saying, I, I like their product, I believe in what they do, or are you actively getting involved in making decisions at these companies? When it comes to Denny, we don't I don't I don't get involved in in his product. I mean okay. we specialize in selling. It's sort of like I'm not gonna tell a genius art maker how to go draw. Yeah. Uh, can we give opinions if we hear from clients like you know, that watch is great. I'd love it if we could have it in 40 millimeter, the same exact watch instead of 44 millimeter. Yes, we'll make suggestions, but day to day, what he's doing and how he's operating and what's going on in his head, we, we leave that alone. That's not, we don't infringe upon that at all. But if you felt they needed it, you'd go in there and you'd say, okay, guys, I I think you have a great factory, but you need to work on your designs or you got to work on something. You would do that. You know what? We wouldn't, I don't even believe we would do that. I don't believe that that's our, that's not our responsibility. Not now, if I invested in another brand that I thought was just way off, would I offer suggestions? Yes. But for the most part, for the most part, you know, our job is to, you know, our job is to educate the consumer 
Our job isn't to manufacture timepieces. That we leave to the experts. Now, you have, you know, ongoingly these announcements about Watchbox and things like that. I know there's a number of stakeholders now, but you keep talking about raising money, but you also make money. What do you do with that money? Do you do you use it to buy more stakes in watch brands, more inventory, more staff? Like, how does the organization, uh, you know, like Watchbox, continue to grow? Because I know no matter where you've been in your business, whether it's the 80s or the 90s or now, you've always wanted to grow bigger than where you are. You're always trying to figure out how to do that. And I'm always interested because you're one of the few people that, you know, is really sort of persistently uncomfortable and wants to, you know, always grow bigger. How, how do you, how does a business like yours do that in the next couple of years? First of all, we have the largest inventory in the world. So I've always said, like I come back to it a hundred times over, our customer's number one. Number two, to, to support that customer, you have to have inventory. And I'm a big believer that you have to own the inventory. I don't believe in, in the marketplaces where you buy watches and you don't even know sometimes what you're getting or who you're getting it from or is it warranted? You know, I think that the marketplaces do a good job of promoting that it's authentic. That's about it. But the marketplaces and other places don't really do a great job of, you know, is it in perfect condition? You're not really, many times you're not even talking to, to, to uh, you can't even talk to anybody. You can only buy it online. But right. Watchbox has the biggest invent- curated inventory in the world, which gives us an advantage. Also, like I said, we're sitting on a couple hundred million dollars worth of inventory. So if you take our industry or our group, it's very fragmented. So you have lots of players that have a few of this and a few of that, but many of those players are strictly, uh, they don't even want to deal with the consumer. We specialize in dealing with the consumer, almost like we're Goldman Sachs wealth management for, we're, you know, for the watch collector. You know, what Goldman Sachs does for clients of high net worth, we try to be that for the, for the watch collector. We try to be a great advisor. So we have that inventory. Now, the extra capital that we've raised, of course, can go for that. It could go for investments in more manufacturers, you know, more investments in some independence. That's another area. We also really believe in being number one in media, you know, as far as a retailer goes, you know, you know, Ariel, we get a lot of reviews. We have Tim Masso. We have good Instagram. We have a nice, uh, we do shows with George. Some of our traders, our, our watch advisors do shows. So we're very big with, you know, the education to the consumer. And then we also have an opportunity maybe to purchase uh, a few other retailers, you know, if we decide that we want to go that route. But for the most part, the capital is for uh, just maintaining the, uh, is to maintain the capital to be number one in the world at anything we want to do at merging the primary to the secondary businesses. What, what is, so what does that mean to you, merging the primary and the secondary? It's something you've said a lot of times. Like, Is there a perfect example of what that looks like? Because even Watchbox and Govberg are, are separate in that regard. So what's that merger look like? What's the ideal? You know, I think more and more, like I said, like if you look at D. Bethune as an example, that's a primary business. D. Bethune, Watchbox, you know, invested in it. And that's, you know, people say Watchbox is a secondary business, but we're bridging now between primary D. Bethune, second, which is Govberg, secondary Watchbox. So it's bringing the customer together. That's all. So saying, are, are, is it saying that they're sold alongside one another? You literally look into the left, you see new, and you look to the right, you see pre-owned. Is that what you mean? No, because... Patek Philippe is basically sold, you know, it's basically sold by Govberg to Govberg clients. But we sell so many, Watchbox sells so many secondary Patek Philippe's that uh, many clients that do buy new from Govberg will buy secondary from Watchbox. So it, it's, it's blended to some extent, 
but separate. That's why if you look at Godberg's website, we don't have any new, we don't have any pre-owned Patek Philippe's on Godberg's website, or we don't have any Rolexes on Godberg's website. It's pretty separate. We really keep it separate. And there's no pre-owned at all at Godberg's store downtown in Philadelphia. We don't have pre-owned Patek Philippe's or pre-owned Rolexes down there. We pretty much keep it separate. Okay. Um, I want to talk about media a little bit. You've always been very supportive of media. You know that the more media is, there's going to be more people liking watches and more people interested in buying watches. So I, I think you've always been a very strong supporter of media for you know all the right reasons. You've had a lot of different types of experiments in media. And right now, I think there's sort of two approaches to media. And like your opinion on, on, on sort of what you like to do most, what you feel the most, the most adept at. A is... We need to tell the world watches are a thing and make new watch enthusiasts. B, we need to market to people who are already interested in watches and help uh, sell them what it is that they're looking for, right? Like focus on what their interests are and what they're doing and and market to that. Now, these are two different types of marketing. You, you ostensibly need them both. Which one have you liked to do better and you think you're, you're, you're better at? And, and who do you think should be responsible for the, you know, the other side? I think that Watchbox is much better at the education to what I would call the already uh, sophisticated watch collector. Or okay. not sophisticated, somebody who wants to become a watch collector. Uh, we, we are really top at that, especially in the $20,000 and over timepieces as far as education, fun inventory, uh, value, protecting the value of what we sell clients so they feel secure. You know, I don't believe that Watchbox is there for what I would call the $5,000, $6,000, $7,000 aspirational, maybe first-time person that's thinking about a watch. I think somebody like yourself or Ben from, uh, you know, uh, Hadinki, I think you guys do a much better job with the aspirational, somebody who's going to fall into an Omega and fall into a Rolex for his first watch or fall into a Tag Heuer than, and do a good job of getting people to want to be that. I think at Watchbox, we're much more educational and there for the client that somewhat has already put his feet into the watch world or wants to. Okay, so... And and what about, you know, the sort of larger effort of creating more watch consumers? Popular culture has done a surprisingly good job today, especially in, you know, the sort of area of music and things like that, where there's a lot of, you know, interest in watches and stuff like that, which is great. But, you know, going back to this notion of who should be creating new watch consumers, you know, who do you feel should be doing that best? Who should be paying for that? You know, there's a difference between who can do it. Like the funny thing about watch media, especially my business of blog to watch is I've always said that the more, the more money that the industry is able to pump into media, what we do is we make more stories about watches. We use that money to reach more people about it. So like the richer watch media is the more watch consumers it's able to create and there it's therefore it's a great investment for the industry, but they haven't seen it that way. It, that's a shame, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I again, I've been outspoken on it. I think that the watch media is changing finally. Um, I think that it's been an interesting relationship over all these years, over the last 25 years particularly, where the industry had control over the watch media. To some extent, they still do. And Instagram people and, and Facebook people and some bloggers that aren't necessarily, um, you know, uh, dependent on the watch brands 100% for, 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 um, for, their, for their incomes. They have, you know, you see a lot more negativity or not or holding brands accountable or calling brands out today with the way that social is than you ever had the watch media do. And I think for some extent, where I do agree with you, I think that the industry as a whole took the watch media for granted. Where I think I do believe that there should have been millions and millions and millions of dollars more given to support the watch, the watch enthusiast publications than were given. And, uh, and I think that it's a shame 
uh, because the brands have taken them for granted. But at the same token, many of those same institutions weren't strong enough to have a voice because their customer was the brand. So if you think right. about is if you think about Ariel, the watch industry and the media over the last 20 years, 100% pretty much the customer to the watch media has been the brands, not the consumer. And maybe, just maybe, if the consumer was the customer to the brands, to the to the watch media, maybe the brands would then today, there may not have been as many left, but they would be forced to be um, better supporters of the same watch media because they would have the customer. They would have the consumer. So we can go around and yeah, around and I mean, around. And you're right. It. Media needs to somehow, you know, with subscriptions or paying for content or some type of membership or something like that, that is probably the ultimate future because it's designed to service the watch consumer. It should probably be paid for by them. There, there, there does need to be some advancement in the culture and some maybe technological shifts to make that more monetizable. But I agree with you. That's probably the most likely future. Yeah, I mean, I think that what we try to do at Watchbox is educate. And, you know, the best of our ability, we try to make it fun. But, you know, I think that the traditional watch media uh, is going to change. And what we're trying to do at Watchbox is almost be a little bit of a media company because we do put our money where our mouth is. We buy product. We buy secondary product. We recommend product. We educate clients about product, but we're there well, for the client. I think what you do is you communicate about your business. Like yes. you talk about the whys of why you do things. Hey, everyone, we bought this watch for this reason. We invested in this brand for this reason. Here's why we like it. If you also like this stuff, we think you'll like it as well. But I think you're just, yeah, you, you, media, I, I think, has a slightly different role because media is has a primary interest of developing a communication relationship with the audience. Your primary interest is in developing a business relationship, which is fine, but I've always believed that media is sort of a separate industry. I think the media has to also be there. When you're the enthusiast media, when you're, when you're the trade media, the enthusiast media, the collector's media go-to, you've got to, I think that they have a responsibility to police brands, call out <laughs> yes. brands, call out brands, Call out leadership. Let, let the world know when you don't think leadership's doing their job or they're making product that's off mark or that's what they do. If you look at you know, other institutions and you look at other industries, the enthusiast media, the, the trade media, they hold brands accountable. And sometimes that, that by holding the brands accountable, it even leads to what I would call more of the Wall Street Journals and the Financial Times. Many times they pick up their stories of what's being written by the enthusiasts or the trade magazines that are holding their category responsible. And I think for the most part, our, our category of media and enthusiast publications over the years have not held the watch brands or the manufacturers accountable. In fact, it's been the opposite. They've been uh, they've been uh, PR firms for the brands more than 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 just um, you know true. We're going to let our customer, being the consumer, know you know what we really think. Okay. Before my final question. I, I hear what you're saying, but how do I reconcile what you said w with, at the same time, you have, again, in, 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 a, in, in a very altruistic manner, warned me about doing that, you know, said, you know, don't, don't get on the wrong side of these brands. Uh, how do you reconcile the fact that you need to call them out, but also that relationships and access are very, very important? You know, I'll tell you what, I've, we've gone around and around at me and you. It's very difficult to do, you know? It's it's very very hard to do, but I think it does it does have to happen. And if it doesn't happen, in the end, everybody vanishes anyway. 
So the few that call them out might get picked on. You may lose some ad revenue, but then you got to, like you said, you got to pick up subscriber revenue, you know? You know, yeah. it's funny. There's somebody out there now that I, I've sort of been following. Um, maybe you know her too. The, the young lady who runs Miss Tweed. Astrid, yeah. Yeah. She's been I on mean, the show. She's been on the show. Yeah, I mean, you know what? I, I give her a lot of credit. You know, if you're if people are listening and you want to you want to subscribe to something, I mean, she she doesn't make a lot of money, but she basically tells it like it is. Oh, uh, Astrid is great. She, yeah, you know, Miss Tweed. She 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 from Paris tries to report on the people and the corporate decision making in the luxury world. Very very entertaining stuff. Yeah, and if it's good or bad, you know, I think that if you're doing well, I think she'd write about how well you're doing, and if you're not doing well. I think she'd write that she would try to hold you accountable and shake shake some trees up. But again, I think our media is changing. I think it is getting much better. I think the consumer aerial is so much smarter than they've ever been. That's what I love oh, yeah. about us at Watchbox. Like the people that are coming to us, the education of how well they know the product, that they challenge our guys. And it's like a duel on, on how smart and how quick the knowledge gets out. I mean, think about it. Tiffany, I mean, Patek Philippe launches a Tiffany Nautilus. Within 10 minutes, it's all over the world. It's like, it's like an earthquake went off in our industry over the Tiffany Nautilus dial. I mean... Uh, come on. I mean, when when could you ever have something go around the world like that? And and Patek Philippe realistically didn't have to spend one dollar promoting that. I mean, it's unheard of. And that's. Where, yeah, it was it was easy from that perspective. And that's where things are changing. You know, consumers are more educated. Consumers are smart. Consumers are making decisions on their own. And. And it's actually fun to watch. I mean, I'm loving it. I mean, I mean, I never thought in a million years I'd be having this much fun after doing this for 40 years. So and see, and you thought an hour would be long to fill up. See, and we now now we're done, and uh, we could go for even more. Yeah, I mean, look, all in all, <laughs> what, what I really what I really think, though, I think in general, all the people in the industry that we talk about, we talk about groups, and we talk about people. They're all good people. I mean, everybody's you know, coming to work every day and we're sharing a passion for watches. You know, I do think that we're in a disruptive time and I think you'll see that, that change is good and that, uh, and that I sort of like it the way things are now where, you know, people are talking about watches and watches are in demand and people are appreciating the product more than they ever have. And it's not all about, how much can I get it at a discount online? Now it's about how can I get it at all? And I think that um, I think that that's a much better place for our industry to be. Danny, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Superlative Podcast. Um, everyone out there can visit uh, the Watchbox website um, or the Godberg Jewelers uh, as a retailer. Uh, Danny Godberg, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks, Errol. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit blog2watch.com. Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? 